Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we have Sean Prentice. Sean Prentice is the author of Finding Abbey, The Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave, which won the National Outdoor Book Award and Crosscut Poems. He teaches at Norwich University and lives in northern Vermont with his wife and daughter. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I'm super psyched about this topic. I'm super psyched about Ed Abbey. I'm super psyched about the desert. And frankly, I'm super psyched about your book. Uh, It's been a few years since I've read it, so I don't have all the details still swirling around my head, but I picked it up today to refresh my memory a bit. And let me just say with full honesty, I have it on my bookshelf right next to all of Abby's books. So it earned its place. And anyone who reads it knows it's obviously it's not written by Ed Abbey, but it's part of the uh, Abbey literature as far as I'm concerned now. Thanks so much. I have my Abbey uh, collection right to my right. And uh, I have, I think, 20 of his 21 books up there. So to know that you have my book next to all Abbey's books, it's a big honor. So my investigation into Abbey and the desert basically became one. So I was always into forests. Forests were my thing. I come from the Northeast. I lived in Vermont, which we'll probably get into a little bit. I went out to Oregon to be in the Pacific Northwest in the old growth forest there. I did a lot of forest advocacy work. And then gradually I was just being drawn to the desert. I had visited a little bit when I was a kid. My parents would take us on these trips and I definitely, I was into it, but not super into it. And then of course, like so many of us, I read Desert Solitaire and it, I guess, I don't know if the word would be literally, but it opened my eyes to being able to see the, the stark beauty of the desert and I became obsessed with the desert and it's part of why I moved out to Colorado about seven years ago so I could be really close to it. And I did spend the last several years going out to Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, pretty much every few months and just going head first and doing some things that were probably not wise but were sort of inspired by Abby and then realizing afterwards he might have been exaggerating about some of those things and then feeling stupid that I put myself at risk, but always would have my copy of Desert Solitaire and just read it in the desert. And yeah, anyone who can't appreciate the desert, you got to read Abby. And then all of a sudden it just all the color bleeds in and it starts making sense. So you've talked plenty about this, so I don't want to make you have to recite things you've already said over and over again. But if you could at least briefly tell folks what impact Abby started to have on your life as soon as you found him. Yeah, I found him. And I talk about this in the book. I, I think it was 1994. My best friend house who who's in the book gave me desert solitaire. And I don't think house had ever given me a book before. I don't think at that time we'd had a, a literary uh, friendship at all. We were skiers and, you know, sort of students, him more than me. Uh, so this was unusual. Uh, but I'd love to read and he loved to read. And I read the book in my backyard in Gunnison, Colorado, in a couple of days. And it just transformed my view of the region I was in. I didn't know much about the desert. I'd visited with my brother once or twice. But soon after reading Desert Solitaire, much like you, uh, House and I just started going uh, to Moab regularly, mountain biking. 
backpacking. And, uh, and like you, I'm, I'm living in Vermont, and I think about these forests or those Eugene or Pacific Northwest forests that I used to work in. And, uh, and they are beautiful, and they are rich. And, and if you dig your hand down into the earth, I mean, I don't know how many feet down you can go, but you'll still see organic matter. And, uh, and the desert's not like that. Uh, you scrape off a, a quarter of an inch, and you're down to rock or sand. And, uh, and I think part of it is just the starkness. I mean, you have one flower in Vermont, and you don't notice it, and you have one flower in the desert, and it's the most beautiful flower in the world. Uh, you know, you have one pond here, and it's one of a million, and uh, you have one pond out there, and every single animal knows where it is and is gathering there, every single human whether it's an economic refugee coming from Mexico or uh, someone exploring the desert like you and me and Abby, we all know where it's at and we're all heading there. So it's just, uh, it tests you in ways that maybe these other forests and other uh, climates don't. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful explanation of it. For me, for sure, there is that element of the vision quest and it's just the alien nation. Like it's just an alien landscape, right? It feels, the whole thing feels like, Mars, but then after a time, it starts, for me at least, it starts feeling like home because even though its aspects are so uninhabitable, as in, you know, it's just dry and hot and, and no water and everything like that, but there are all these rock formations that you can just start sitting on and you can just set up camp there. It's weirdly, in some ways, more hospitable than a forest. And also there's this open aspect, which can be terrifying. But at night, it sort of alleviates the night fear that I'll even admit as a guy who spent a lot of time in the wilderness. In the forest at night, everything's closed off. So it's like monsters are nearby. But somehow in the desert, I can see the monsters coming, but the monsters there are kind of the elements, right? That's what you have to protect yourself against. But yeah, there's there's just something indescribable about the desert. Folks who have gotten into it, they know what I'm talking about. Folks who haven't, I kind of pity them, but I get it. It's a horrifying, it could be a horrifying and gorgeous experience literally at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I've had so many experiences out there where uh, it's grotesque and beautiful and, and brutal. And uh, one of my favorite stories, I was working with a at-risk youth program and uh, a guy from Denver, wonderful desert rat named Fritz, he took me on as his assistant and we went into White Canyon, into the black hole. And uh, to start out the day, we jumped into 45 degree water and we were a group of 10 of us, I think, maybe eight of us. And we had to swim through the black hole and uh, it never gets sun. So the water is always freezing. And we all went deep into hypothermia, deep, deep, deep. And this is uh, the day before my birthday. So it was June 7th. And uh, it was deep enough that I was really worried that we might have major catastrophe on our hands. And we made it out at the uh, nick of time and uh, just laid on the rocks uh, and soaked up the sun. And then we hiked out. And then we had uh, people getting heat exhaustion by the time we got out of the canyon. So in one day, in one little part of the desert, we went from hypothermia to heat exhaustion. And, uh, and that's the desert. It's the extremes. It's all about extremes. And you realize how frail we are as human beings and how 
thin that veneer of life is above the rock. But at the same time, these deserts are very much alive, particularly at night. All these critters come out. So the idea of there's just these blank spaces on the map, that's definitely not the case. But what's funny is I'm always torn when talking about the desert because I'm like, you should see it, but at the same time, you better not be at the place where I'm at because I don't want to see you when I'm out there. So how, how have you... How have you kind of rationalized that concept of, I want people to go out there, but man, in some ways we are kind of over trammeling the wild landscape. So how do you think about that? Well, I mean, that opens up a, a much bigger conversation, but my first thought is, and this is something that people shy away from a lot, but we have to deal with overpopulation and we refuse to, and we're scared to, and we think that, and we're seeing this with COVID and wearing masks that we as Americans have rights. And we do, we have a lot of rights. It's uh, one of the wonderful things about being an American, but Abby was an anarchist and he fought a, a great part of his time against overpopulation. And he would argue that a true anarchist is focused on their landscape and not on, on a landscape elsewhere. So an anarchist is not a person without rules. It's a person with uh, community-based rules based on the land they're living on and the culture they're living with. At least that's my interpretation of his anarchism. And I'm saying all this because we uh, we think we have these rights, but we don't talk about our responsibilities. And uh, I think a good anarchist would say, hey, how do we fit in with our community? What do we need to live here well? And as a global community, we need to stop having so many kids. And uh, it's it's good that you brought that up because here at the Green Root Podcast, we are about getting to the root of issues and there are various roots, I would say. Maybe there's one deeper root. I haven't figured that out yet. But the population issue, we did a podcast on that, knowing full well that it would get me canceled in some circles. But as I always tell my guests, I come pre-canceled. I canceled myself just after being born, shortly after being born, so I don't worry about that stuff. But yeah, I think that's an excellent point that you're making. The idea of, yes, rights, that's nice, but responsibility, and that is ultimately the way to get the government off your back, right? So those of us who don't like the government telling us what to do, guess what? If you do the right thing in advance, they don't need to. So it's interesting, the, the overpopulation topic, because, of course, Abby spoke about that issue and that is now a taboo issue in environmentalism. So let's let's shift a little bit into some of the things that Abby said that would have gotten him canceled were he alive today and which I think might be part of the reason why the new generations aren't as familiar with his work because it comes with some rough burrs, right? So so the population issue. So let's just get right into it. Was that because Abby hated Mexican people? Yeah, I think yes and no. Uh, well, first off, let me say, I've tried to do all my research into Abby. I've talked to as many people as I can. This is me making assumptions and speculations. So I, you know, I will not speak for Abby. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm just giving you my viewpoint. And I say that because, uh, I never met him. I, I'm not his friend. I would have loved to have met him. I would have loved to have had conversations. I would have agreed with him on many things, and I would have disagreed with him on many things as well. Um, but I think on, on a simple level, yeah, I mean, he didn't want Mexicans 
coming across the border, Central and South Americans coming across the border. He was anti-immigration. But I, I think the reason he was anti-immigration, for the most part, was rooted in his desire to keep people out of his community. He didn't want people in, in the Tucson area, in the Moab area, you know, these Sonoran deserts and the Great Basin deserts. So did he have real and wrong-minded uh, anger towards um, Latinos? Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that was the root of his overpopulation. I think it was more about there's just too many people here and here could be anywhere, but especially the desert Southwest. And to give you an example of how right he was about there being too many people, in the 1940s, he moved to Albuquerque with uh, about 45,000 people. And uh, right now, there's a, a suburb called Rio Rancho, which has over 100,000 people. Albuquerque, I think, itself now is over a million. So in 60, 70 years, 80 years, uh, you know, it's increased by 960,000 people. Yeah, it's unreal. And it's funny reading Abby sometimes where, what, in 1950, stuff like that, where he's talking about there are too many people out there. It's like, oh, oh, Ed, if <laughs> if you only knew. Basically, it was a ghost town compared to, say, Arches right now, which is a place that it's almost like, yeah, if you haven't been, you should probably go. But at the same time, that would be your starting point, And it's not going to be a true desert experience anymore because just too many damn people. It's still, it's it's freaking gorgeous. Arches was amazing. And that was kind of my starter plate. That was my appetizer for the desert yeah. and super important. But yeah, it's such a, that's such a complex issue. But yeah, the, so the issue of being basically, let's just say a misanthrope, I'm not saying Abby is, I'm saying I am. So for me, it's definitely not picking which culture is which. And, and I, I kind of, uh, I, I'm personally not against immigration. I think there should be limits. And I think any sane person doesn't really think open borders forever because people would cluster an area. And mostly that's an issue of land. So I'm concerned about the land. Um, I am concerned about folks who are struggling and they want to come to a place where they can thrive more. And I'm not sure it's for me to say that they can't. It's a complex issue, but but coming back to Abby, so you're saying it's, it, it is a combination of wanting to protect the land, realizing there's limited, scarce resources, but then also perhaps a bit of xenophobia towards other cultures? Yeah, you could pretty easily find the xenophobic quotes from many of his nonfiction and fiction books. So I don't think it's a stretch to say there was issues there. And, you know, I talked to Jack Loeffler, Abby's maybe best and longest friend, and you know, he told stories about Abby and, and uh, Loeffler going to Mexico and running into banditos. And uh, there's a, a variety of stories about, you know, dangerous moments or scary moments that might have turned Abby off. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, he's uh, he was not a fan of those cultures uh, and not a fan of Native American cultures either. Mm -hmm. He was really a fan of place. You know, he was a fan of of landscape, of image, uh, and he always talked about wanting to be a, uh, a Native American, an Indian on a horse, while really not liking their current culture. I mean, he's a brilliant man. I think he's one of our smartest writers uh, in American history, but he had some blind spots from my perspective, and one of those was 
you know, if you looked at the problematic aspects of Native American culture, he maybe couldn't trace it back to uh, the broken treaties, uh, trace it back to, you know, the alcoholism uh, that we brought to them, you know, trace it back to what we did to destroy their cultures uh, and have them force themselves to rebuild it, you know, sending them off to boarding schools. And he just didn't see that. He just thought that they were lazy drunks, which was, uh, I mean, just kind of a terrible oversimplification. And, and Yeah. 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 I, I think probably all of that is true, right? At the same time, and I'm not trying to defend him in regards to those views, everyone's kind of a mixed bag, but he was to a certain degree a product of his time. So he, if he was alive today, yeah. he would literally be as old as my grandfather who just passed away last year. So he would be like in his nineties, right? He would be in his yeah, yeah, he'd be uh, ninety three, I think, so maybe ninety four now. So if you look at a ninety three year old grandfather who has some backwards views, it's not like you're twenty in twenty twenty and you're having those views. So I, it's not to forgive them, but I do think. The idea of, oh, well, now that I grew up in this culture where we know these things, everyone back then should have known this. Personally, I think that's a little bit unfair. Folks are doing that with John Muir, who also had some backwards views, who over time actually evolved with those views. But he was literally born in the 1800s. So it's like a lot of these folks were just products of the status quo. And obviously in the 60s, there was an awakening of, well, we need to be appreciating all sorts of other cultures and stuff like that. But of course, Abby was, was, a, was a different kind of dude and he was definitely a bit crusty. But I think your point, he's not even a, he's not a fan of culture. So it didn't seem like he had a hostility towards and he certainly was not enacting violence towards or advocating harm towards. He, he had these stereotypical views and, and he was not a fan of certain cultures, but he wasn't, he wasn't like he was talking great about American culture in terms of, um, you know, European culture. He wasn't like, yeah, that's why New York City is so awesome or Paris is, he's kind of shat on everyone across the board. Uh, so the question is whether or not he actually had more hostility towards these particular groups than he did towards, you know, your average, uh, New York City inhabitant. Yeah. I'm thinking, uh, and I'll get back to the beginning stuff you started talking about. But, mm -hmm. yeah, we could talk about uh, city culture. I mean, he wrote about New York City, Hoboken, New Jersey City, Patterson in really unflattering ways. Uh, he has an unpublished novel that I, I read most of. And, uh, I mean, it's just all about the city. And uh, and he just beats on it. Uh, he talks that way a lot of, about women, uh, about Native Americans, about Mexicans. Uh, so there's plenty of people he talks about that with. Uh, but I also love your idea that if you were to judge any one of us on our worst moments or our beginning moments, uh, there's a problem with that because, uh, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter and, uh, you know, she told me the other day she didn't want to be my friend <laughs> and, uh, I'm not going to hold her to that for the rest of her life. <laughs> I hope that, uh, she grows and evolves and I know I have. And uh, you can't expect an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old to be fully realized. We're growing. And, uh, and you know, Abby had so many powerful ideas that to throw them out because of some reckless ones or some wrongheaded ones uh, doesn't seem useful. Rather, 
let's learn from him. Let's see what we can take from him and let's see what we can teach him. You know, he's uh, dead and gone, but we can still say, hey, you could evolve in these ways and become even more brilliant. Yeah, for sure. And I don't want to keep harping on this topic, but I do feel like it's important to put it out there. And a lot of times the critiques of these folks come from people who don't actually even appreciate the man himself. So I don't find them that helpful. They're basically their own ideological critique. But basically, yeah, he had what would be called in some ways at a level of development that is sort of ethnocentric. But at the same time, it wasn't like he was, you know, white power. He wasn't talking about how awesome his culture was at all. So that's what I think is very different about, say, some folks today who might have those very ethnocentric views. They're like, yeah, because my culture is better. He's like, actually, all of our cultures kind of suck. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is you have to remember there's at least two Ed Abbeys. There's probably 628. But one of them is this human. And the other is this writer. And the writer was bombastic. And he did that right. uh, for two reasons. One is to make a point. But the other was to get readers. And everything you ever hear about Abbeys, if you went to a party much of the time, he would be the quiet guy in the corner. Yeah, and uh, and then there's there you know there's other stories of him being loud and in the center, and those seem to revolve more around uh, you know when he had more to drink, and I understand all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also important to remember that this guy who people accuse of not caring about people was a social worker, right? So you don't do that work if you hate people, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he had a heart. Well, uh, I talked with uh, quite a few of his friends for the book, and he had been dead 20 years, 20 some odd years. And uh, his friends were just wildly defensive of him because of their deep, deep love for him. Yeah. And uh, and these are brilliant people, brilliant people who recognize his, his, his flaws. And uh, yet they didn't throw him out. They recognize that, you know, we all have our, our failings and they stuck with him uh, before Jern, after and, and onward. And that's really what I want to get at here is not to dwell on these things, but just the idea that, which is very common today, if you have any part of you that is not acceptable, even if you did it 70 years ago, you you don't count anymore. Like you're the cancellation. I'm not sure if there's been an active effort to say, take Abby's books off of bookshelves or anything like that. But I think there probably is an unconscious, at least shrinking away from certainly those aspects that I think personally were a bit backward. Some of his views or at least his statements, whether he truly believed them or not about Native Americans, uh, folks from, from Mexico, South America, Central America and women and stuff like that. But, yeah, the idea of you do something a little bit wrong, everything's gone. So, for instance, I'm Jewish, right? I, I, I come from a cultural history of really understanding what it means to be Jewish and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was written by a guy who is an open anti-Semite. Should I just, mm. well, I don't watch those movies. Like, that's silly. That's yeah. ridiculous. Like, maybe I wouldn't want to hang out with that guy. Um, now I can't, now his name is uh, eluding me right now. But it's, I don't want to say so what either. But the reality is, I think in 50 years, we're going to look back on a lot of human behaviors today, things that are considered socially acceptable, like I can't believe, you know, it might be around even meat eating. I was a vegetarian, vegan for a while. I'm not currently, but 
I, I get that. And it may be like in 50 years, like, oh, you know that person who wrote this awesome thing? Uh, remember Obama? He was a great president. Yeah, but he ate chicken. And anyone who yeah. ate chicken now is, is evil because we know that chickens have these feelings or whatever. So I think that's a dangerous road to go down. And I guess my question for you about Abby would be, do you feel like some of the bristling towards him, aside from those, those aspects we brought up, is because of his, what I would call a masculinity that he brings to his work. Do you think that's part of it? Oh, I'm sure, you know, I think about audience when I write and, uh, I remember one of my professors talking about, you don't want to write for everyone. It's just not going to work. And, and Abby chose who he was writing for. And it's a, a, a sliver of the population. And, you know, I know plenty of people who just don't enjoy that overly masculine tone. Um, I enjoy it. I, I recognize some of its weaknesses, but I see, uh, you know, semblances to my life there. So I don't mind that tone. I don't mind uh, the, you know, excursions into nature, the, uh, the testing oneself. But I also recognize that whenever I write something, you know, a lot of people, if I'm lucky enough to have them read it, are going to dislike it. And that's perfect. So, yeah, I think they do bristle at Abby because he might be, you know, quote unquote, one note. But I don't think that's unintentional. I think that's uh, I mean, he had some pretty good fame in his life. And I think he was pretty aware of, you know, how his writing style was playing into that fame. He was well known for being bombastic. I mean, he gave a reading in Montana where he uh, slammed a, a gun on the lectern and then talked about how cowboys are, uh, you know, just another uh, way of getting welfare. And uh, and he did it intentionally, you know. Yeah. And uh, if you're a cowboy, you probably don't like Abby. And if you don't like that, uh, that loud voice, you probably don't like him either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that those are excellent points. Um, see, I've read other desert writers, and maybe we could talk about that in a little bit. And I appreciate pretty much all of them. So Terry Tempest Williams, but there is, and I and I don't mean this in any negative way, and I don't mean this even to put things in a box. But there is a femininity to her writing, which you know, obviously, nothing wrong with that. And it, that does not draw me in the way Abby's stuff does. I mean, she's arguably even. Sorry, Ed, like maybe even a better writer than Ed. But in terms of just his stuff is like this penetrating, go out there and kind of test your metal. And that is something that definitely really appeals to me. Not that uh, Williams hasn't done that stuff, but it's more with her stuff. It's felt like it's more an embracing and appreciation and enfoldment. And I have those parts in myself for sure. But something about Abby's stuff, just like I, I need to have the, that boldness and those guts to be able to get out there and really immerse myself in it because it's it's a scary thing so maybe it's that i'm afraid and then i need that bluster in order to be able to confront it yeah well yeah i'm thinking about terry tempest williams and uh, refuge and you know we could look at all the ways that abby and i are similar or different and then same with terry tempest williams but one of the ways that uh we're similar is um you know, the, the cancer scare running through families. And when I read Refuge, I'm thinking about the river I grew up on, the Delaware River. I'm thinking of all the pollution and I'm thinking of the pharmaceutical factories that are just upriver. I'm thinking of my mom and the cancer she goes through. 
So maybe I lack that femininity. Maybe I lack uh, empathy, you know, that Terry Tempest Williams obviously possesses. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a, a bigger leap for me to latch onto. But then this other thing just gets me hook, line and sinker. So I, whenever I, I think about, you know, audience, you never know what it's going to be. And there's all these different things. And again, you know, the, the each desert is so different. You go the Great Basin to the Sonoran to the Mojave, and these writers are so different. And you know, what's your favorite desert? And it might be different than mine. And uh, you go to Bisty Badlands, and you're like, what the heck is this little spot? Yeah. And uh, and that's you know some unknown writer that that you may love that I might just hate. Um, but uh, that's the beauty of it. it's all these different voices, all these different cacophonies coming out of that that region or that landscape or that gender or that race. And uh, it appeals to some of us and uh, not to others. And uh, but for me, Refuge is just uh, one of those uh, keystone books for me. It just it changed my life. Sure. Yeah. And there's so many different contributions from so many different folks. And I think the geographical areas definitely tie into it. There's a lot of folks who aren't very familiar with deserts. Like, oh yeah, you know, there's the generic desert. Here's the Coyote Roadrunner, which is basically an amalgam of a bunch of different deserts. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess it's just in my mind, in, in our culture today, we are seeing a lot of the shadow side of masculinity, which I think it's about time, right? We need to take a look mm -hmm. at all that. And I've been very much a part of that for many years, taking a look at my feminine side and, and all those things, which I think is a a beautiful thing. You're you're not a man until you can look at your feminine side. <laughs> like like that's just really how it is, in my opinion. But and psychologically for that whole right, we need to know all that. But I do find that some of the demonizing of the masculinity, and I'm not talking about even in terms of social justice stuff or anything like that. But I'm talking about an example of like Abby's stuff, kind of forceful, out there, bold, brash. That's that's an important contribution as well, and. I think it's important for us to rediscover that. And I think it's important for those of us who are drawn to that to not feel shame, but at the same time, see that shadow aspect. So that, that to me is what I worry about in terms of, are we pushing Abby or folks like Abby out of our public consciousness because of some of those darker, darker masculine elements. And you don't have to comment on that specifically or not, but I, I would be curious, what what would your you say his contributions to, let's first start with environmental writing, naturalist writing, even though he didn't like to consider himself that, he mostly considered himself a novelist, but it's kind of like Tchaikovsky, right, where he hated his nutcracker and everyone's like, that's the best thing you ever did. He's like, no, it's not. You don't appreciate my real work. Well, that's the way it turns out. So first the environmental writing, and then we can talk about his influence on the environmental movement. So, so what did he do for environmental writing you know one of the things i think he did is uh he opened it up and he made it something that anyone could read uh you know desert solitaire i think sold over a million copies and uh there's probably a good chance if i were to look at your bookshelf or you were to look at mine we have one of those millions of uh cheap paperback desert solitaires that you could find at any bookstore in America. And it, it's just, you know, he allowed an entire generation of future nature writers, environmental writers to, to begin speaking, to have a voice that would be heard and read. So I think that's one of the big things he did. 
Another was the blending of, the, of nonfiction with uh, environmental writing, just really getting into these landscapes. And he was a wonderful naturalist. I mean, he was brilliant with his landscapes, uh, a, a, a brilliant writer. Um, so I think those are some of the major things he did there. You know, and then we move on to uh, some of his other novels, especially, and he started radicalizing mm -hmm. uh, environmental writing, which I think bleeds into your other part of the question. And for me, the big thing that his writing does for environmental writing, but also especially for environmentalism, it goes back to that anarchism. And you get this radical environmentalism that is so far out there. And this is, again, that that larger than life masculine figure, you know, dropping a crack down the dam. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's, you know, doing all these wild things in real life and on the page. And what it does is it normalizes previously radical organizations. And it creates this, uh, this big giant eddy and all of a sudden the, the currents all move in some new direction. And now we have a chance to say things we never had a chance to say before. And, you know, very honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about this political error and uh, look at what Trump is doing. You know, the more he says these things, the more he pulls us in one direction and then the more space there is to say other things. So it can be used for good or for bad. And, uh, you know, again, we can look at Abby and his quotes on women, Native Americans, Mexicans, Central South Americans, uh, I guess, urbanites and, and maybe the negative parts there. But then the positive if is when you get radical and you, and you stand for something and you have a good understanding of uh, your ideas, then all of a sudden you pull the center towards you. And now the center has become more radical in your direction. And if you have good ideas, and I think a lot of Abby's ideas were brilliant. Now we can talk about overpopulation. Now we can talk about wilderness. Now we can talk about protecting these landscapes. Now we can talk about why you know, women have an equal spot out there. Now we can talk about why we need to let uh, handicap or disabled people into wilderness areas. So we complicate it in every direction. But for me, that was one of the major things he did. And then the other thing he did almost without uh, sway was he was nonviolent from beginning to end, except for one moment in his writing. And, uh, and that started from when he was very young and that continued almost up until the day he died. And that nonviolence I think is really important as well, where uh, he's willing to do anything as long as it's nonviolent. And he's this big masculine man who never once advocates for physical harm of another human. And I think that's something that we don't talk enough about. We talk about, you know, again, his bravado, but here's someone who's saying, I'll do anything, but I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah, well, it seemed as if if you listen to his talks and you look at his videos, he's fairly soft-spoken, right? So maybe outside of alcohol, he's fairly soft-spoken. I would say he is probably is an introvert, sort of an introverted fellow. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be bombastic, and but it seemed like a lot of it was in his books, and he seemed very sensitive and all that. So everyone is complicated, right? We can't paint people with one brush. I think that's pretty obvious. But yeah, I think... So his, his creative nonfiction, right? Because some of it he did distort and he would lump things together and he would sort of write some stuff that may or may not have happened. My guess is, I, I'd be curious, but I would assume 90% of it happened, but maybe 10% of it was sort of an embellishment. 
Yeah, I think you're probably right. And that's the, probably the case with all of our writing. You know, yeah. we can't write the truth. We can just aim for it. And I think at times, I mean, you know, again, with Desert Solitaire, it took place over two years. He says it took place over one. Right. He says he's there alone. He's there with his wife and his two sons. Um, you know, those are major distortions and major, major falsehoods. But it's a beautiful book. And to me, the truth of the desert does not get lost in those falsifications. No, I've actually heard opponents of Abby saying, yeah, he was a fraud. Because It's like, well, you obviously don't know what a book is. And it's like, come on. Oh. So now his observations of Cliff Rose are not valid because his wife was there. Come on, give me a break. And he spent plenty of time on his own and all that stuff. But yeah, what I also love is that he did insert this stuff into his fiction. And as a fiction writer myself, I really appreciate that. I think it's a it's a tricky thing because you don't want to be too preachy. Or if you're going to be preachy, you, you got to be over the top like Monkey Wrench Gang, which frankly influenced, inspired some say created earth first. There were some smatterings of that going on and stuff like that, but that sort of solidified the image. And that's a powerful thing. That's, that's more powerful than I would say most novels have done. And so that's why I think, and you may or may not agree with me that one of the most powerful ways to reach people is through stories, through interesting plots, through characters, you can engage yourself rather than here is a factoid care about this now. That's why we write. That's why we tell stories. I have a, a exercise I do with my students, and uh, I tell them uh, about uh, world hunger. And I don't know if you know this, but one in five kids in the world don't have doesn't have enough food to eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know they're slowly dying from malnourishment, and it's a it's a real problem. And uh, if I were to ask you, you know, if you'll donate a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars. If I put you on the spot here on the podcast, you might say five dollars. Thank you very much. Uh, but for the most part, we're just going to say, I mean, that's a shame. And then there's that one famous picture of um, a starving African child with a vulture behind it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the story is right there. The story is this kid is alive, but not for much longer. And mm -hmm. as soon as this kid dies, that vulture is going to feed off of it. And my students, when I bring that image up, they gasp. Yeah. And they don't gasp about the, the one in five. They don't gasp when I say the millions of, of children that are starving to death or, or malnourished. But that one image, I think, would get more money out of their pockets than the numbers. And it's because we care about stories. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a very human thing. And in my mind, I try to always make sure that the story leads rather than the information that I want to convey to people. So I'm still balancing that. And I think that's a, it's a juggling act like anything else. You want to actually have something to say, but you don't want to be like, here's everything that you should believe. Um, yeah. So it, it's a, it's a tricky thing, but I think literature and getting information out there is super important. However, you may have found this with your students. People are not reading as much. And does that worry you? Yeah, and that, you know, you were talking about one of the reasons, all the reasons Abby's not read. And one of the things I was thinking of is a lot of it is he's an older writer who has a, a wonderful niche. And I mean, there's just less writers. There's uh, probably like a million books being published in America every year. How do we keep some of these old timers relevant if we think they should be? And, uh, and how do we keep people reading? And, uh, 
you know, for me, my mental health comes from reading and writing and, and being outdoors. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't give it up. Yeah. And uh, I hope my students learn to love reading as much as as I love to read. I mean, it just it's it's created me in ways that my parents did. You know, those books and my parents are, are pretty similar in their influence. Uh, my parents more so. But, uh, you know, I sure hope that we keep reading it. It's it worries me. Yeah. Well, for me, I have to write and read, like you say, and go outside. That's just my nourishment. So I'm going to do it regardless. One of the things I try to, I try to make things accessible, right? So obviously you develop a style that has a facility to it that that's engaging, but I write horror. So I write biological horror and I'm like, this is a fun thing for people who, you know, horror is a fun thing. So I'm actually, I, I write literary horror, so I, I sneak other things in there, but at the same time, I'm trying to just appeal to the masses. So that's my little, my little trick. So I write about things I learned in nature. I wrote this one short story where it was funny because this was meant as a criticism. I did eventually get this published, but this was a, a rejection letter. And it was one of the a story that was based on one of my times in the desert, but then I made a monster basically but he said he's like yeah your story kind of just comes across as narration of a long hike in the desert and i'm like thank you that exactly <laughs> and he's like no no not in a good way oh okay I'm like, well i i did what i wanted to do with that basically i just wanted to bring in the the isolation of the landscape and just the experience of just the heart thumping when you realize you're so far away and then it was like it started to rain and then the trail itself became a little flash flood I didn't need any monsters for that to scare me, but I realized I needed to put some monsters in the book. So that's the way I'm kind of doing that, uh, sort of tricking people into <laughs> to carrying this stuff. But do you feel like books are important in terms of it can actually acquaint you with and help you see and get you out into these wild landscapes? So therefore we can appreciate them. Therefore we want to protect them. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think about Abby and bringing me out into the desert, Terry Tempest Williams, Charles Bowden. I think about uh, David Budbill here mm -hmm. uh, in Vermont, you yeah. know, showing me, teaching me about this landscape. And uh, so, yeah, definitely, you know, I'm hesitating because I think very few books are going to bring you to a new area. So I think a lot of it is just we have to, we don't always have to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm here in Vermont and my job here now is to learn this landscape. I've been here, I think seven, eight years now, eight years. And, uh, and, and I'm also getting older and I'm also, I've got a, a wife and a daughter and I'm rooted here in a house on a lake next to a mountain. And so I think the best thing that writers can do is exactly what you're talking about. Teach people to care about a place but that place for the most part should be where you're sinking those roots that, you know, you get your podcast title from if we're going to protect our homes, you know, we don't have armies that defend other countries. We have armies that de defend our country. So yes, we're over, we have uh, soldiers over in Europe and in the middle East and all around the globe, but it's really just to defend this little country called America. And uh, you know, when I think about what I want to protect, I have a lake right here that I care about mm -hmm. and I have a mountain right here and I have a family and, uh, and I want to write about now this landscape so that anyone that reads it wants to help me protect my home. 
but especially the people that live here, that visit here, that care about this landscape. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And yeah, I came up with this term, sort of a joking term, but ecosystem patriot, because I always think, all right, if America is invaded, would I fight for like, you know, America's fine, but whatever. Not, I, I don't know if I would or not. But if they came to try to take the the mountains away, yeah, I'd fight to the death for that. And that's why I've been an environmentalist my whole life, basically trying to protect the landscape from my own country is the reality of the situation. Yeah. It's, it's not these invading forces. It's it's our own industry and, and government and frankly us ourselves, our own our own footprint. We can't we can't deny that. That's that's for sure. But I, I do think that's a beautiful thing, really. Uh not necessarily, oh, where's this new adventure I need to go off on? That's fine. And that's certainly a, an important thing for a lot of us through a certain point of our life. But I, too, am getting to the point. So I'm 41. I don't have wife and kids or anything like that. But the idea of inhabiting an area more, and I've sort of been doing that. I moved to a place and I, I kind of end up hanging out for about part of a decade and really getting to know it. But, yeah, finding a place and really going deep. And I spent a lot of time in Vermont, in fact, and Vermont is, is where I started to really engage with the natural world when I was born in New York State, and then I went up there for college, and I would live out there in the summers, basically in rural Vermont on campus, but in the woods. So I would live in these shacks or just these tents, and sometimes I'd eat mushrooms, <laughs> but that to me was my education, so paid a lot to learn how to write, I guess. Uh, I would have done that anyway. But hanging out in the woods, getting to know a place. Do you feel like it's odd that somebody such as yourself, you love the desert, but you're in Vermont, which is pretty much the opposite of a desert? Yeah, I think about that all the time. I grew up in Pennsylvania. Okay. And, uh, and then I went out west for college, and then I stayed out west. And, you know, we were talking a lot about masculinity and the West has some bold masculine elements that I fully love. And, you know, you climb a peak and then you race back down it, or you go out on these massive backcountry ski tours, or you go out into the desert for days on end, always testing yourself. Uh, and, and I love that. And I, I still love getting out there. And there's also, a, I'm not a very spiritual person and maybe the religious view. I'm more of a, I'm not a scientist at all, but I love the science of the world. That's what really staggers me. But the, the desert just has this echoing spiritualness to it that just always moves me. But then I, I come here and uh, I remember the first day I came to Vermont to interview for my job. And uh, I was just thinking, wow, this is a beautiful version of Pennsylvania. And it found it, mm -hmm. it felt exactly like the home I had grown up in yeah. and my people moved uh, from Germany and Austria and then later elsewhere, but in the 1740s to my hometown in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> we've been there 250 years and uh, it's nice when I look outside, it doesn't look all that different. <clears throat> so I look at the West as uh, kind of my, my young adventure days. Yeah. And now, uh, again, I'm 48 and uh, have a three-year-old and I'm looking more at the long term and, and leaving something for her and really getting to know a single place for the rest of my life. And I'm hoping it's right here. Yep. Um, that doesn't mean I can't love that other place in a different way. Yeah, I can sing the praises of Vermont all day long, frankly. And I wonder if it is a thing where 
you're born in a certain ecosystem, you crave that and you want to go back to that. I come back to Vermont a couple of times. So I went to college there and I loved it and it was awesome. Basically kind of like a, like an overgrown garden, moist and leafy. But at the same time, there are some desolate stretches at Northeast Kingdom. There are plenty of forests you can get yourself lost in. There, there's wild in Vermont. There's no question about that. And you go out in the winter in negative 20 degrees that shit gets pretty wild pretty fast. So I've not experienced anywhere colder than Northern Vermont personally, where literally a walk down a dirt road to like maybe to the mailbox was like a challenge. Like, wow, holy crap. If I fell in that snowbank, I'd be dead in not that long. I'm actually in a tough me who's always out in the snow. I'm going inside. This is, this is a, more than I can handle. But at the same time, I, I relish those moments, just that feeling of it's so cold that it's like you almost pass through normally what cold is. And it's just this other feeling that isn't even cold. It's like you're in outer space. It's intense. But you live in an area that I lived in that area. I was living in East Montpelier for a while. I lived all around Vermont. This was my second iteration of Vermont when I came back. And that is I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to name places because then people will go there. But and and you deserve your quiet back roads. But it's like quintessential Vermont. The the dirt roads and just the old maples. And to me, it's it's like, it is the quintessential village. And it's like they hacked it all apart once upon a time. So th this is my theory on why it's so cozy in Vermont. They, they hacked the forests to pieces, right? They, they decimated pretty much everything back in the day. But then over the last hundred years, it's been growing in around the edges and the margins. And you can sort of feel that. So everything's got these soft, these soft edges as opposed to the West's, like you say, masculine delineations. And there's just something so cozy and just gorgeous about Vermont that I love it. Well, and, and this all tie back to Abby. Uh, you know, another reason I love it is I think of, of Abby's radical environmentalism and, and how we can bring that to today. You know, is he just stuck in time? Is he preserved? Can we move his ideas forward? And I think maybe what he would argue for is, again, you know, going back to his anarchist ideas, his community-based ideas is, uh, you know, my wife and daughter are going to go to the farmer's market today and uh, we're going to get some local chicken. I hopefully uh, I'm not canceled because we're eating chicken. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but then we're going to get some good Nepalese food from a Nepalese family. But it's all food that's made right here. Those chickens are from right here. Um, I am learning how to bow hunt. And uh, so my meat, I know right where it comes from. I know uh, how to butcher it. I know how to freeze it. I know how to cook it. And uh, maybe there's problems there, but I'm close to the source of my food. Our garden is overflowing this year and, and we're on, on no levels perfect. But I would say one of the radical things we can do today is live smaller and live more local. And you can do that pretty easily in Vermont. And, and it's maybe easier than most places. You can grow your own food. You can hunt your own food. You can buy local food uh, in many, many, many places. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciated about Vermont as well, aside from the natural beauty, is just local foods were a big thing. And what's interesting also is that, of course, if we're reinforced socially to do things, we're more likely to do it. So 
there is a whole community of that. And it's almost like you can, not that this is the reason people do it, but having a garden gains you status in a sense. Like I'm, I'm simplifying it, but, but it's like a cool thing to do in Vermont. Like, oh, wow, you work with cows. Like that's kind of like a cool thing. There's all this young folks who are involved with doing some agricultural work that elsewhere, like, you know, if you were living in a big city, that's sort of not particularly cool. Some cities, maybe Portland or stuff like that. So it's beautiful that the that the society itself encourages that way of living. And yeah, I got pretty close to settling down. That's what Vermont does to you. It makes you start to settle into the land. I was living in an 1849 converted schoolhouse right next door to an old church. It was just this perfect piece of land. I looked into buying it. It didn't end up working out. But the idea of so inhabiting that landscape, which is very different than what happens in the desert to a large degree or the wilderness, which, yeah, there's little places you can set up camp that feel very homey. But ultimately, it's sort of other. And we're supposed to leave. You know, we do come from the wilderness and things like that. And there were tribes that lived there forever, even though they didn't have a name for wilderness, supposedly, whatever. But the idea of here's a place this we don't really belong here anymore. But this is the place that we do, and we still have all of the nature around us, which, because for me, I, I don't want to be in a city. Like I lived in Denver for the last, for five years, and that was fine. It was important for me to do almost to get over my loathing for cities, and I did get over it, which was important. And then COVID came, I'm like, all right, fuck y'all, I'm heading for the hills again. So now I live up in the, the foothills of the mountains. But Vermont is is really a great place to you're, you're at home, you, you can have your amenities, you can have your family and stuff like that, but it's all at your doorstep. Nature is all at your doorstep. Yeah, if I turn around my laptop, 40 feet away is the water and uh, a sixteenth of a mile is the mountain and I can backcountry ski right here, I can ice skate right here, I can swim and canoe. Um, I can get to farm stands pretty quickly. I can get the wood from uh, for my wood stove, you know, maybe not on my property, but on nearby properties. I can hunt pretty close and there's problems, uh, but I like it here. And I like that we live closer to the things we use than I have in a lot of other places. Yeah. So I keep coming back to the masculine and feminine thing, which I think a lot of people misinterpret. So maybe a better term is yin and yang. For those who don't know, masculine and feminine doesn't mean, oh, a man and a woman. It's it's a lot deeper than that. For Eastern, Eastern religion has a lot of those aspects, you know, a yielding aspect, which can be in a man versus kind of a putting something out there. It, does, it doesn't mean you're man or woman, though it tends to cluster more, say, in men, masculinity than women in some ways. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes maybe it's just socially enforced. But anyway, that's that's my quick spiel on that. But I like the idea of how you pointed out the West has that masculine element of the landscape. And so therefore the East has a bit more of that nurturing femininity, likewise in environmental movement stuff. So I've been a part of the the macho earth first, like blockade stuff. That's a masculinity to it, even though more and more that's, you know, plenty of women are doing that. But there's certainly, you could say a masculinity, that yang impulse versus what I was doing in Vermont, which is I was a part of transition town stuff. So it was about 
creating these events where it was all about local food and we were we created something called the village building convergence which is just getting people together to do workshops on everything from harvesting wool to planting vegetables and stuff like that making a whole culture out of it and it was a very different kind of activism but i would say just as important because we have to we have to protect the wildlands we absolutely have to but then we got to figure out how to live and we want to be close to nature it's a healthy thing to be close to nature what's funny is a lot of environmentalists i know they're city dwellers and so there's this real disconnect and it's also there can be a bit of delusion as in oh yes nature is this pure good force and it's just like beethoven's sixth symphony is just playing in the background and that is sometimes my hikes a lot of times those are my hikes right those are about like 80 percent of my hikes but then a fucking thunderstorm comes right overhead and there's lightning bolts and i'm crouching down on my pack to to absorb the the lightning strikes that are all around me and i'm all of a sudden, i'm looking around i'm like this isn't pretty anymore like it's still wilderness i still love it i still go out every single week in it but it's that different face of it that's the face that you can see in the desert when it gets too hot and you realize you're dehydrated and then you wonder if your blurry vision is the onset of heat stroke and things like that or going out in the blizzard and it's cool at first like oh look at all this wind and then you can't see your way back so i think that's a side of of the wild that is just as important to acknowledge and yeah, have a healthy fear of, which, which I think a lot of city dwelling environmentalists don't have. Well, and then another thing to add to that is that, you know, if nature is not everywhere, then there's a problem. And I don't want to live in cities. I don't work well in cities. But if we don't think about how we can bring nature into those cities, then we are just creating big divisions. And you know, the thing I like about here is whether it's quote unquote good or, or bad nature or nature I like or don't like. Uh, I like to be able to wander out and get to it as quickly as possible just to remind me that yeah, I'm just a part of it and uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, and the more disconnected I get from it, the less healthy I am. But uh, we, we have to, I don't want to live in a city ever again, <laughs> but I want there to be more and more green spaces in those cities. I want there to be more inner city gardens. I want there to be, uh, you know, more access to, to wildlife and food and, and trees and uh, all of that. Um, I totally agree, especially for folks who don't necessarily have access. So a lot of us are privileged enough to be able to live in situations where we do have it. I have elk roaming around my house. I have several deer who sleep right out there. Deer, if you come from the Northeast, deer are no big deal, but you know, out, out in natural areas that they're, they're a bit more, they can be a bit more rare. I have just all these critters running around out here and I am constantly reminded of how awesome it is to have access to that. There are folks who live in cities who, who don't have that opportunity. So of course, I would like to see that more. We're actually gonna have somebody on the podcast soon who's talking about urban nature stuff. And because everyone should have a right to experience that and make those cities more livable because ultimately, yeah, I think it does come down to the number of humans. I don't know if we can all spread ourselves across the, the landscape anymore, right? Can we all live in, in Vermonts? I, I don't even know if we can anymore. I think that's the more ideal way to live 
but I don't know if that's really an option. So we might have to cluster people in cities. So let's make the cities more pleasant and things like that. But also in terms of making it so nature has a foothold so then people can actually appreciate the nature. So they'll want to save the nature beyond the, the, you know, beyond their landscape. So they don't necessarily have to have walked in that forest to want to protect that forest. And unless you had some experience with nature, you're not going to give a shit about it. Why would you? Yeah. And those people without access to it often don't have, they have greater concerns than protecting the land and that's protecting themselves and the social justice, environmental justice, all of that. Yes. So. No, exactly. And that's the point that I always make is that you can't really care about the environment unless your needs are met, right? So it's almost like a luxury to be able to care about a forest. Ultimately, if you don't care about the forest, you don't care about air, you don't care about climbing, you don't care about water, that will kill you eventually. But if you're just struggling to survive, yeah, you, you're not going to... You, uh, redwood is kind of meaningless to you. That's why, ironically, and this is where there's all these contradictions, it's almost like, well, to get people to a, to a ability to have that luxury to care about the natural world, they have to be economically well off, which right now means more capitalism, right? So it's like, it's this tricky kind of thing where you you have to get people to, a, to a, have their needs met for them to be able to care. And right now that's through our economic system. So I believe there are better economic systems that can incorporate other aspects. But right now, what is bringing people out of poverty around the world are aspects of capitalism. So it's like people who make money in certain worlds being able to invest in other countries. So it's this big messy thing. And I don't expect us to to get to the to the answer of that right now. But But it just shows the more you look at these issues, the more complicated you remember that they are but at the same time i do always then return to yeah but no matter what wilderness is really important and that's pretty much like the only thing that i don't think gets too complicated on its face as in well sh should we or shouldn't we have wilderness to me I, maybe i just become a zealot when i talk about that uh, but i'm just like well to me, that's the number one thing. We have to preserve those those areas that are left. And then for sure, we can see here's a working landscape here. Vermont is an example of, well, we can actually maybe take trees here and there, but let's sure as hell not do what we did in the early 1900s where we denuded the landscape. We've hopefully learned that lesson there, but a lot of the folks don't actually remember those lessons. So that was just my rambling way of saying all of these issues are important, but I don't think it is a anti-human thing to say, sorry, but we do still need to protect wilderness. I uh, brought up my friend House, who was in the book, and uh, his real name is John Hausdorfer, and I'd mentioned him to you previously, but he wrote or uh, edited an anthology called Wildness. And the entire anthology is about wilderness and wildness. And he comes up with a definition for wilderness, which is a self-sustaining landscape. So a wilderness is any landscape that can sustain itself. And then he converts that to wildness and a wild place is any place that and, and people that can sustain itself. And I think maybe this is the key where wilderness is, is vital, but it's 
it's just it's an island unto itself and that's wonderful but there's still us out there and there's a lot of us so we have to get added to the equation and and john would argue at least i believe he would argue that we have to figure out ways to make the human parts of the wild self-sustaining and that goes back to your economic questions uh those food related questions but uh, we we need to protect our land, but we're only going to do that effectively if we figure out better ways uh, to live. It's it's totally true. They're the same. They're different parts of the same equation. Um, yeah, I, I I the one thing that sometimes worries me is that there are folks say in Vermont who are like all about the working landscape stuff, and they're like that's why we should you know, be able to to go into any forest and be able to cut out trees. And I would argue that there are some forms of logging that for sure are way less, way less invasive. I met a lot of those folks and I just did a podcast on that. But I guess what it comes down to ultimately is, yes, we need to figure out the way to be able to live in touch with the landscape. But I don't think we've, <laughs> we figured it out years and years ago. There, there are tribes in, in our early humans, we, we sort of figured that out. But currently right now, we're not doing a very good job of that. So I definitely want to you know, maybe it's a very primitive concept, but I want to hold some places where it's like, okay, you don't get to touch these and maybe we figure it out. But in places like Africa, for instance, we had somebody on the podcast, the view on wilderness there is a bit different. So there've been tribes who have been living there, folks who've been living there for indigenous folks for a while, for, for a long, 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 long time, right? So the idea of we're gonna take you out of there so the lions can roam, that's that's not really a good option. Maybe a few areas, but but for the most part, they, they found that that's obviously that's an inhumane thing to do. But ultimately, a lot of these folks can be stewards of the land if the idea is to protect animals from poaching. Well, you have villagers who give a shit about lions. They actually do protect the, the, the animals from poaching because they're present and they can kind of snitch on the poachers, right? So so that that's, I think, more of an example of being able to weave humanity into the wilderness. I think mm -hmm. in the U.S. we have despoiled so much of the landscape that we have to be careful with it. I think the best examples can be, though, with Native American tribes and reservations and whatnot. And I think that's where I'd be most interested in seeing the experiments. And that's where a lot of the experiments have happened. And at the same time, we, we have to be aware that we industrialize things a little too much and we, we can very quickly run out of that landscape. So I definitely don't have any answers and I, I definitely am open to my views evolving, but I, I still think, so wilderness is an important thing, but then how do we live more in connection with nature? They, they are almost like they're housed in different silos and I haven't necessarily mm -hmm. personally come to terms with that, but I do know if we're like, well, let's just open up every wilderness area to, we'll just see what happens. Like, I, I don't, I don't personally think that's a good idea, and I know that's not what you're advocating for. <laughs> no, I'm advocating that we learn to live wild in our urban areas, uh, in our suburban areas, uh, in our rural areas, um, so that we can keep more and more land protected. Yeah, that's what's funny. So basically, learning how to live in Vermont is a way of protecting Red Rock Wilderness in Utah. Like they're they're the same thing, right? Yes, they are. Yep. Does somebody want to come on the podcast there? <laughs> she just ran away. Oh, my my daughter just 
uh, like most people, I'm working from home and uh, she came to visit. But, she, she's uh, welcome. She probably has some insights that you and I have not even dreamed of yet. <laughs> she's got her wildness in her. There's, well, that's the thing about kids, right? They, they still have that, that wild element that we tend to get beaten out of us later in life. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I've found that through kids, friends who have kids or women I've been dating who have kids, you can start seeing the natural world through their eyes a lot of times and sort of seeing it again. And that's basically what we have to do in terms of just the landscapes in general, be it wilderness, be it inhabiting local landscapes, is, is seeing it through the right eyes. And I would say that literature is a way that that's one way of us being able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Abby uh, taught me to see the desert in some new way. Just like last night, I was driving home from our relative's house and uh, my daughter was asking us if we were, I think she said, like, are we chasing the moon home or are we following the moon home? But uh, just like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, that best literature can get us to see the land anew. And uh, those best children, I guess all children can do that as well. So maybe let's conclude a little more on that topic there. So, so you're somebody who is very aware of, of the plight of the land, some of the things that we can do. You have a daughter. So, so how are you introducing her to these things? Are you sort of just letting it happen on its own? And what sort of hope or fears do you have for your daughter's generation? Uh, the I think it was the first day home from the hospital. I, I took her cross country skiing. I think it was probably five degrees out, and everyone thought I was nuts. But I just figured, you know, if you're in my family, this is what we're doing. So you're going to start doing it, and uh, she can choose later not to do it. But uh, so that's how I, you know, bring around to the world. I just anything I can, I do. I mean, why would I not? Uh, we. Uh, we're lucky enough to get a deer when she was, I think, one and a half and uh, brought her into the garage where it was hanging and it was gutted. And uh, we said, you know, we showed you deer and here's another deer. This one's dead and it's uh, going to be converted into meat and it's going to give us, you know, food. And we say thank you, deer. And uh, and for, and still to this day, you know, what is if I ask her what a deer gives us, she says meat. And I if I say, what do we say to a deer? It's thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want that to be a regular part of her life. And it was not a regular part of my life. Uh, but plenty of other wild things were, you know, I want her to be able to backcountry ski through the woods. I want her to be able to hunt if she chooses. I want her to be able to ice skate and mountain bike. But uh, I want her to know the trees better than I do. I want her to know, um, you know, the wildflowers better than I do here. And I want her to be rooted in this landscape more than I've ever been rooted in a place. And then, you know, my hopes are... I'm a wildly optimistic guy in theory. I'm always smiling, always laughing, but I'd say my biggest hope is that uh, the catastrophe go waits long enough for her to get old and die. Uh, and then my fears are everything else. You know, I, I am having one kid and I only had that one kid with reservations. I'm a firm believer in stopping overpopulation. I'm a, a firm believer that based on overpopulation and, consumerism and capitalism that we are uh, buying and spending and, and drinking and eating ourselves to, uh, to terrible places. And uh, 
those wilderness areas that we both love will be little tiny zones uh, that are destroyed from above and the sides uh, because of what we're doing. So none of that is, uh, is, is filled with hope. Um, but I think if we have less kids, if we educate people, especially women, if we redistribute our wealth, uh, then maybe my daughter and her generation has a chance. That's yeah, that's, that's really touching. So we started the conversation about Abby. We swirled around as my mind tends to do. So my podcasts always do, but your book. So for folks who haven't read Finding Abby, definitely check it out. If, if you appreciate Abby at all, or even if you've never read Abby, it could be a really great introduction to it. Basically the story is around looking for his grave site, but it's really about about so much more. And we didn't end up talking a ton about the book, but I can't encourage folks enough to to read it. And being the somewhat expert that you are on Abby, what do you think Abby would be saying about today's ecological crises? You know, and any thoughts, obviously you can't speak for him, but just in your imagination, what do you think he would be telling us to pay attention to or to not pay attention to? Give some made-up, fictitious advice from Ed Abbey. I would say uh, that I don't think he would he would change too much. I would say mm-hmm. that he would say climate change is a major problem, but that is not the root. That is a result, and the root is overpopulation, and it's our economic system. Abby was anti-capitalist, and he was uh, anti-population growth, and he would say we need to to work on those two things to rein in climate uh, change and everything else related to it. Yeah, that's that sounds that rings pretty true to me. Having read pretty much everything I can get my hands on about the guy and, and books that other folks have written about him. So yeah, Ed Abbey, as this Facebook group that I belong to, Edward Abbey Matters, Ed Abbey still matters. So read Ed Abbey, read Sean Prentice, and thanks so much, Sean, for coming on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Josh, it was a great pleasure. Tell Colorado I say hi. (laughs) I'll do so.